Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stolen Droids Present. I'm your host, Zook. I am here with Zoner, and we have for you this evening, for your listening pleasure, David Nett, actor, director, and all-around awesome guy. David, say hi. Hey, guys. What's up? Nothing much. Thanks for coming on with us, David. Of course. I'm excited to be here. Now, David is uh, one of those chance meetings that we we got we we kind of we were down in vegas at the new media expo in january uh saw some other people we knew and out of nowhere just kind of got shoved in your direction and said hey you need to talk to this guy he's freaking awesome and <laughs> somebody was lying to you but i appreciate the gesture <laughs> <laughs> i i think she was just trying to get rid of us really <laughs> <laughs> i love how you say that we were just hanging out too what we were doing was crashing somebody else's open bar that's what we were all doing You know, I actually wondered why you all showed up there (laughs) because y'all weren't at the podcaster awards, but (laughs) we weren't. We all we all wandered in and saw there was an open bar, and it looked like a good place to hang out. So, yeah, yeah, that that was actually our open bar for the podcast awards. (laughs) Yeah, and and it, it was a good place to hang out. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. Well, it was kind of funny because in the end, we ended up meeting a lot of people who we didn't know. We we had never heard you by name. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had met, you know, that's actually also where we met Stephanie Thorpe as well. And, uh, that was another name we didn't know, but it was once we got talking to you and we're like, so what, what do you do? What do you do? And what have you done that we realized, oh my gosh, we've watched your work. We know you. And so for the people at home who may be in the same situation, how would they know you? What have they seen? What, what, who um, is well, David Nett? Uh, in the last five years or so, I've, I've done a, a handful of projects on the web. Um, I've created, uh, wrote, and, uh, and directed some of uh, two shows, one called Gold, which is a sort of a satiric soap opera about professional role-playing gamers, and that, that came out in 2008, 2009. And then I did a miniseries called Night of the Zombie King, which is a sort of a big chill story about, again, like Dungeons & Dragons players. Um, sort of, but it's a drama in the space. We were trying to experiment to see if there was a, an audience for a drama about about us. Um, and so those are the two things that I sort of helmed. And then I've been in a, uh, either on screen or written for a whole bunch of other shows on um, The Temp Life and uh, Hollywood Wasteland and Pairings um, and uh, uh, Rad Nerd and uh, you know probably a couple of other shows that I'll remember later and feel bad that I didn't mention. But so I've been kind of living in the in the you know, digital TV, web series, web TV, whatever you want to call it, space for the last five years or so. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, not to get sidetracked already, even though it's kind of my claim to fame, <laughs> you mentioned digital TV. You've just been living in the digital TV space, but you could actually say that you're actually a pioneer now that you have <laughs> Netflix and Amazon and Hulu making original programming. They're really following you. We were we were there pretty early. I would say my team and I were there pretty early. I, I think we were at the beginning of the second wave. Um, for for me, the the first wave of that of that digital TV web series. Again, the, the people call it different things in this world. I think web series is probably the most ubiquitous now. But sort of the the pioneers of that were you know well predated Gold and and, and what we were doing. Um, and it, and that's the the Homestar Runners and you know I think about the shows that made me feel like I might be able to make Gold. And it was Homestar Runner and it was uh, Red versus Blue. Um, which was the first web series I ever bought on DVD, uh, uh, which was amazing. And, uh, like, you know, Goodnight Burbank and French Made TV and Tiki TV, um, Clark and Michael. There was a Canadian show called Take Me Back. So there was, a, there was a handful of stuff in that kind of early days when you were, you know, the only things you could do were like downloaded as a podcast or, you know, watch a little teeny tiny crappy embedded QuickTime stream on somebody's website. And there, and there was a, so there was sort of that wave. And, and I think the end of the first wave from me, and this is not, there's nothing scientific here. This is just kind of how I judge this thing, um, where it went to sort of, you know, experimentation from some really forward thinking people to something really big was, I think the guild is what straddles that gap. You know, we, we started making gold. Um, we were writing and we began shooting it about the same time the third episode of the guild dropped. And we hadn't heard of it until the third episode dropped and it kind of exploded and, and I think that that the guild really bridged sort of the first wave and the second wave. And, I, and you might argue we're heading into a, or we maybe are already in like a third wave right now. But but I think there are some real pioneers out there. While while I appreciate people knowing that I was in early on and had the foresight to be there, I think the real pioneers are those guys from that first wave and you know kind of culminating in what Felicia did. You know, it's interesting you you mentioned that I had never. I was a huge Homestar Runner fan. Uh, Homestar <laughs> Runner. Um, oh geez, what was his name? The Squirrel I, from Ill Will Press. 
Oh gosh, yes. Uh, Foamy, I... Foamy the squirrel. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought of him in years. And you're right, I used to watch all those, but I never actually considered them web series. But you're right, by your definition, that would count. They were the pioneers of web series. It's totally what they were. They were giving us, you know, kind of TV style entertainment it, it, as best as it could be transmitted at that time. Because we're talking about now, like, you know, gosh, what, uh, 2002, 2003, like around that era, you know. Um, I'm probably my dates are way off. I have, I have a horrible sense of time. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really early stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know you suck at Photoshop. That was one of the first ones that I just really, I, I loved Homestar Runner, but you suck at Photoshop was, was sort of for me like an, an innovation, like this is a show kind of thing. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean that whole first wave of those people who were out there experimenting when it was, when it was really hard to show somebody else your show. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the fact that everyone was still on dial-up back in the day, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, really, the, the, you know, I remember when we first were chopping, before we made Gold Ourselves, uh, I had spent some time, I had written the show, um, I actually wrote uh, the first, what will end up being two seasons, we only ever made the first season, I still hold hope we might do the second someday, um, but, uh, you know, I chopped it around for a while with what little connections I had, you know, I was a struggling, frustrated writer and actor in, in Hollywood, and I wasn't getting neither part of my career were doing what they wanted. I wanted them to do, and and uh, and so I decided I was going to try to you know you know pitch my own show around rather than trying to to get jobs a, a normal way. And and uh, the people I talked to who were interested in web stuff, you know, everybody was talking about gosh, you know, about bandwidth and about you know your show cannot be longer than three minutes, and your show you need to be able to watch it, uh, you know, and it needs to be look really great at, you know, 300 pixels wide. And, you know, just really, that was really the era that we were talking about back in 2007. I guess 2007 was about when I was shopping around like this. And it was really, everybody was very, very focused on, you know, how can it be 30 seconds to three minutes? How can it be, you know, just teeny, teeny, tiny, and the file sizes be minuscule? Because really that's, you know, there was a lot of concern about only a tiny group of people can even watch this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 we completely ignored all of those recommendations and, and you know, made 10-minute episodes and, and because we shot them like a TV show. And I will say, the, you know, Gold, our first thing was sort of our film school. We were writers and actors and directors, but none of us had actually produced a project before. So there was a lot of uh, learning to be done. But we shot it like a TV show. So there's wide shots and there's, you know, uh, cowboys and and things that would look really terrible in a tiny 300 pixel window, or that you wouldn't be able to figure out what was going on necessarily. Um, and uh, and in the end, you know, those people who were really obsessing over the current technology just weren't thinking about the next year and the next five years and the you know. Um, I, I mean, I will say when we finished Gold, we weren't able to put it on YouTube um, because YouTube still had a five minute limit on its content. Oh yeah, and I forgot about that. So we, I mean, we had it in the beginning. We had it on like Rever and uh, you know a couple of other places, and then uh, uh, Blip uh, was the early days of Blip, and they actually reached out to us, and and we ended up on Blip, and they were our primary sort of home um, because YouTube didn't allow long form content or medium form content or whatever you want to call it, ten minutes an episode. I, it's funny. I remember downloading over dial up uh, in nineteen ninety nine, and the uh, that video troops. Oh gosh, yeah, troops. Of course. Oh they're, yeah. Other like digital pioneer. There was no way for them to distribute anything, you know. So you had to uh, uh, go to one of the file sharing networks, uh, or you know, or download it from their website. And yeah, you know, in the end, it was little teeny tiny, you know, glorious, probably five hundred and fifty pixel wide uh, video. Um, yeah, totally. Troops was huge. Forty-eight um, megabytes on thirty-three-six dial-up. That was a living hell. (laughs) I just remember, like, Troops was one of those things that was sort of revelatory for me because, you know, I didn't know the guys who made it or anything, but I had a rough idea of how they made it. And it looked, at the time, so fantastic. And just, I mean, it began that long, slow process for me of understanding that, you know, digital filmmaking and, you know, a, a more, I guess, egalitarian model for making things could look like what we expect television to look like that could look like what we expect movies to look like. And it was, you know, sort of a long process of that. Um, I, I always tell people one of the, the, the two shows that, that I think solidified my, my desire to make gold. I wasn't sure anybody would watch it, but my desire to actually make the thing were, uh, Clark and Michael, which I think a lot of people watch because it was, uh, you know, Michael Sarah and Clark Duncan, who's another actor who's been on the office recently in the last couple of years and apparently doesn't age. Um, and they, wrote a web series right 
after I think Arrested Development ended. Um, it was like a 10 episode story arc about them trying to make it in Hollywood and they sort of played versions of themselves and, and it was really, you know, lots of celebrities were in it. Lots of the people from, from, uh, Arrested Development were in it and it was really funny and really good. And it was, I don't think a lot of people think about it, but it was one of the really early examples of people who were already sort of established in Hollywood. I guess at the time, I don't know that Clark was, but, but Michael Sarah certainly was, um, kind of experimenting in this do it yourself place. And then shortly thereafter, there was a Canadian show that I always talk about called take me back. That was, uh, Canada's got this just great, um, sort of arts funding model where, you know, there's a certain amount of money that's just uh, available that, I mean, obviously the people who want to make movies and, and tap into this have to submit, you know, grant proposals and stuff, but there's a great support from the society to experiment and to do cool stuff. And, and I, this project called take me back that I, I don't, again, I don't, have any contact or knowledge of you know really who made it or anything but it was young filmmakers and they made like a 10 or 12 part web series that was roughly feature film length in the end um sort of about a guy who it's sort of a pseudo sci-fi thing about a guy who gets kidnapped and i like i don't want to give it away i would say find it online it's called take me back and and it was i want to say that it was probably made in like 2006 or 2007 um, really early in the in the web series world, and it was, you know, when the internet was slow enough that there was this beautiful, you know, cinematic looking photography and stuff. And if you wanted to watch it in a decent size, which I did, you would have to wait for twenty or thirty or forty minutes for the thing to buffer <laughs> in, in your browser to watch it. But it was it was spectacular, and that, you know, and, and these are the kind of the, the lesser known shows that people don't talk about because we all we all kind of equate the guild with the beginning of the web series movement and, and you know, Felicia was Felicia and Kim were uh, incredible pioneers, but there was, there was a lot of experimentation before that. And a lot of it was really, really cool and really good. Now, where, go, go ahead. Where do you see yourself or not yourself? Where do you see the web series movement going from here, David? I mean, obviously we started with little flash animations to, you know, YouTube and where, where do you think it's going to go? Is, is there, is it eventually going to hit a peak? Is it going to limit? Um, well, I, like I, I guess my opinion about, about the thing is I, I'm not sure that there are a lot of people that agree with me about this, but, but what we've been doing, I think for the last few years, um, the pipes through which it's delivered is sort of irrelevant. I, I think, um, a lot of people will disagree with me because there's lots of things you can do differently on the internet with interactivity and stuff than you can just on a TV. But most of us have been making, and I'm among this, things that whose format is similar to traditional film or traditional television, right? And we're just delivering it on your computers because that's where we have access. Sorry, I've got a plane flying over my house in a second here. If you can hear that, I apologize. Um, so, I mean, I think that's really what we've been doing is is we haven't so much been making web series, although that's what, what we've been doing is, is called right now. What we've been doing is making independent television um, in the same way that there's been a robust independent film movement forever. Um, and that, you know, the, that sort of really rose to like a fever pitch in the 90s and then was co-opted by people with capital because there was clearly a marketplace. Um, I, I think that's what's going to happen. A lot of us guys like me, uh, a handful of other people who are, who are making projects that, that have a really powerful niche following but maybe not a really broad traditional demographic following that like a big advertiser is interested in. We're going to keep making indie TV. Um, the idea of going to the web to find your TV is going to become more and more normal. Like it's already normalizing. You can see it, you know, entertainment weekly is talking about web series and stuff. And, and, and most of the talking about a handful of the really big guys and then celebrity driven stuff, but they're still talking about it. And so I think there will, there's going to be an indie TV movement that continues, you know, whether we can figure out a way to, I hate the word monetize, but that's what I'm, you know, that's what it, what it is. Figure out a way to make indie TV pay or whether indie TV will out, will become what sort of indie film is, which is, you know, sort of a way to be artistic and passionate for most people and maybe get yourself a job in a more traditional industry. And maybe you keep making independent films because that's where the art is. Um, but there's not a lot of money there. You know, it, it may, it may be like that. I hope that it's not, but it may well be like that. And, 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 very soon we're going to see that there's no difference between web series and television and film and all of those things. It's, you know, the box which you watch them through is kind of irrelevant. Our TVs are gigantic. The separation between TV and film is razor thin now. And that's going to be that way for for the web as well. And the difference will be that there will be a, this 
you know, lower barrier to entry independent television movement alongside the, the bigger budget, better funded stuff. And, and maybe we can bubble up to the top. And I hope that that's the case um, increasingly. But, but, you know, I think I really think that's what's the most likely thing to happen. Um, it's exciting that there can be indie TV now because we have an access. We have access to pipes that we didn't have access to before. Um, you know, you, you keep using that term indie TV and independent television. I've never heard anyone use that phrase until you just now, and I love it. No, no I'm serious because because we we've talked with you know we've we've had Jonathan Colton on the show. We've had uh, you know Chris Nettapack. We've had Stephanie Thorpe. We've had the guys from Loading Ready Run, uh, a sketch comedy yep. troupe up in Canada. And they all say the same thing, you know. Well, what do you do? Well, I make videos. Oh, that's interesting. On the internet. Oh. You know, what do you do? Well, I'm an award-winning songwriter. Well, that's really cool. On the internet. Oh. And it's, it is it is indie TV. When you put it that way, it's, it legitimizes it in, in name. But you're right. It needs to be monetized. And as much yeah. as a sellout as that sounds, unfortunately, it's not legitimate unless someone's making money enough well, to continue it's a, it. It's not a sellout thing either. I mean, you know, I guess the two things I would say is that early in this time, this process, sort of, I would say maybe 2009, 2010, there were lots of fights in the community. The, 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 there's a large portion of the sort of, I guess, web series community that's, that's knows each other fairly closely. We were, there was a time when we were all struggling mightily against just trying to explain to people what the hell we were doing. And so we kind of clung to each other in a clump. And, and got to know each other, you know, either over the internet or in person. You know, I live in LA, so I'm close to a lot of people who are doing this. Uh, there's another community in New York that uh, I'm also close to o- over the years, and and then you know, clusters all over the country and all over the world. There's a, you know, a lot of people in Toronto and Austin is sort of a hotbed of stuff, and there's a great group of people in Seattle and Portland's community is getting big, and so the, the bigger cities are starting to get these communities, and we, you know, in 2000, like I said, you know, eight, nine, ten. We were all, those of us who were doing it at the time, had lots of kind of arguments with each other and with, you know, the few people who were starting to recognize what we were doing about what to call this thing. And, and a lot of us were, you know, and these were just silly semantic arguments of us trying to label ourselves, but a lot of us were really adamant against web series. Um, and I was one of those. And it was because I didn't want, um, I didn't want what we did to be, to be uh, described by the box on which you watched it. And I didn't want what we were doing to be sort of devalued as a second class thing. I mean, the the web series that are out there and ultimately, you know, we lost this bat battle because what you are named is not what you decide you're named, what you're named is what larger society decides to call you. And so right, they didn't right. have any say in that. You know, I pushed any T V really hard and I bought a whole bunch of URLs to that effect and it didn't work out. And and uh uh so whatever we think we're doing, web series is what we're called. Um uh so so that's I mean that's a big part of it. And as far as the monetization and stuff goes, I mean it's not um, you know, there's a certain amount of legitimization when you can command advertising dollars, you can command sponsorship dollars. But really what that's about is about sustainability. I mean, those of us who have been making things until this point independently, um, almost all of us are broke uh, uh, from making these things. Like my, the projects that I've been working on, I can afford to do it every couple of years because, you know, even with a little bit of uh, like Indiegogo support we got for, for Alice and the Monster, our most recent project, um, it's you know mostly it's coming out of our bank accounts and there isn't a strong model for us to monetize yet and there's a handful of shows that have been able to figure it out and i think that's one of the places that um that felicia and kim really were were really serious pioneers in and i think wilson cleveland um is a, is another one of those guys i don't know if you guys know wilson he he runs a, a digital um tv shop uh in New York, it used to be called CJP, and I'm blanking now what it's called. They just changed their name, and I apologize to Wilson. It used to be CJP Digital. Um, but they figured out how to make shows for brands. They made uh, Temp Life and Leap Year, um, which are hugely successful, really good shows that had strong audiences. Um, but so far, figuring out a way to make your show sustainable has been sort of the anomaly. It certainly isn't the rule. And that's what money does for us. Uh, it's less about legitimization and certainly not about selling out. It's about the capacity to keep making, you know, um, and, and and not for it not to always be exhausting uh, construction in the margins. You know, we we just shot a feature film last year that we're in post production for right now, a feature film like project that was could be a web series or a feature um, called Alice and the Monster. But we had to do the whole thing on on weekends and evenings because we all have to pay our mortgage too. And that's the, the difference will be when 
when there's an opportunity for us to not do it that way. Right. Now, tell us a little bit about Alice and the Monster cuz I mean, that's it's it's kind of a heavy kind of heavy subject matter compared to a bunch <laughs> of gamers sitting around a table and you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a, it was a departure for us. I mean, this is the third thing that we've made on our own. You know, all of us, uh, yeah, I've got, we've got a team of about five or six people who have worked together on all of our projects uh, to differing degrees. Um, and uh, just a, a group of just extraordinarily talented people. And then there's a larger group of people that we rely upon for, for, for more of the productions. But there's sort of the core group of us. And, and I created Gold uh, uh, and Andrew um, Deutsch, who's one of my writing partners, wrote a little bit on it. Um, but mostly I created and wrote gold and then I directed the bulk of it and Andrew shot the bulk of it. And so it was a, a smaller shop. And then we did Zombie King and Zombie King was actually a pitch that we did to a company who wanted to buy gold or who wanted to buy a second season of gold from us, but um, wasn't giving us what they wanted it for. The money was actually not terrible, but the turnaround time was just impossible um, given that it's a narrative show that had to be written and edited and everything. And so we actually pitched them Zombie King, which was, um, a smaller scale project that we could do in the time frame, and they passed on it, um, but we ended up falling in love with it. And, and then while we were doing Zombie King, Andrew was actually creating a, a show called Alice and the Monster, and that was, um, it was sort of his his uh, idea for the project, and he brought it to, to me and to my wife Shannon, who's uh, an amazing, astonishing actress and also one of the producers on our project. She plays uh, Martha in Gold, the uh, the British uh, sort of the bad guy gamers, the 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 woman in the bad guy gamers, and she's an extraordinary actress uh, uh, who's done a bunch of film and, and television and, and uh, uh, a ton of theater, and and Andrew had sort of this idea for a show that would star her, and and we started looking at this, and it's a uh, he was Andrew was moved by um, Christina Applegate's story. Uh, she talked about when she was diagnosed with breast cancer and sort of the the, the decision process that she had up to getting into like a double mastectomy and and uh, you know how to continue her life and sort of the thing that he keyed on was her talking about the experiences that she had with revealing her cancer to the people around her um, and sort of the way that the world reacts to to that diagnosis you know we like we talk a lot about cancer people surviving cancer and people being in remission and and recovery and stuff, but the the dirty secret sort of our of our society is that we support each other a lot, but you know, people who get cancer sometimes die, and we all know people who who are touched by this or who have you know perished from this, and it's a uh, you know so our reactions to somebody we know or somebody that we love being diagnosed with cancer are are sort of an interesting mix of support and horror. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that's outside of society's control right now. And it's, it's a hard thing to face. And so Andrew became really interested in that. And he brought that idea to, to Shannon and I. And then, you know, he had written some sample episodes. And, and then he and I sat down and Shannon with some story elements. And we, we wrote uh, six or seven episodes, um, shopped it around a bit like we were doing everything at the time. So this was like 2010, maybe. And couldn't get anybody to bite on it uh, uh, while we were while we were shopping it around. Um, I don't know if you guys know the Showtime show, The C Word, uh, which is uh, Laura Linney's show about her being diagnosed with cancer. Um, uh, I think she has melanoma in the show. She has like skin cancer. Um, I remember was, hearing the title name. Yeah, it was it was announced while we were actually driving to our first pitch meeting uh, about Alice uh, on the radio. So we heard the Showtime announced this show, The Big C. <laughs> so, and the subject matter was sort of similar, and and uh, uh, timing was was bad. I mean, it wasn't the only reason that we weren't able to get it out there, but um, and and so it was. But it, it's a hard show because it was it was structured like a romantic comedy. Um, the idea was we would take this woman who was a professional woman who was, you know, sort of date in the dating world, and and her career is going well, and 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 uh, you know she's sort of has some funny dates and things are going sort of badly and then accidentally meets uh, a guy that she's had a crush on that, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but like really kind of standard romantic comedy structure. And we wanted to build this sort of story and then throw into there the additional, the B plot instead of being some wacky friends thing or whatever the B plot is, she's been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and is sort of figuring out how to navigate that and, you know, it's, I guess, possibly terminal brain cancer. And so we know from the first moment of the show that she's 
she's waiting for uh, the results of a biopsy that will tell her whether her cancer is indeed terminal or something that is more treatable. And so, and that's because so nothing really adds comedy like brain tumors. <laughs> well, and I, I think that the idea for us was, was that uh, I, I've been calling it lately a romance because it's romantic comedy sounds terrible because it's, I mean, while there's funny stuff that happens in it, it's really more about the romance. And it's about Alice and it's about how the world reacts to her. And it's about, um, I think very often that, you know, films or TV shows that explore cancer, um, very often it's very much about the cancer. That's what the story is about. Don't dying of cancer or not dying of cancer. Or, you know, we wanted to make a show that was about a different subject matter where the sort of underlying tension that's ratchets everything up and is sort of inherent everything in everything is this, this potentially, uh, you know, fatal diagnosis. And so it's, it's, it's less of like a romantic comedy and more of a romance, but it's structured like a romantic comedy. That's how we got a handle on the story. Now, um, not to, not to immediately compare your work to someone else's, but it sounds like kind of the same approach and problem that like 50-50 had. It's interesting you say that because we, we had just, uh, I think we had just begun pre-production when the, uh, the early parts of pre-production when the 50-50 trailer started to drop. And that was another thing that we were just like, oh my gosh, you know, obviously it, it, what it makes it feel really good, obviously we're on to something. There's an idea in here that people are gravitating toward. Um, so that, in that sense, it was good. And, and in a lot of ways, the story, 50-50 is the same thing. It takes a, a comedy structure and it applies this darkness to it. And I think 50-50 works really, really well. I like that movie very much. There's much that's different in Alice from that. Um, and I think the story, one of the things that we, we chose to do was, you know, 50-50 had um, this really, you know, they do the, the typical story thing of establishing this is, this is the main character's normal state world. And then here's the inciting incident of the cancer to cause this shock and this turn. Um, we started Alice after that diagnosis specifically so that, the story would become about her work and dating life um, instead of being about the cancer being the turn. It's actually something happens in her work and dating life that's a turn and the cancer is sort of present. And, and, uh, uh, but, but, you know, apart from that, it, it's, it's very similar to what 5050 did. And I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think talking about, you know, if, ta- if you're talking about cancer and it's always a, a really teary eyed discussion, you, you've sort of, I guess dehumanize a little bit the person that you're talking about or the people that you're talking about. I mean, the, you know, uh, Alice is not her cancer. Alice is a person um, who has cancer. And I think that's one of the things that sort of the, you know, sort of the traditional lifetime movie, I guess, aspect of, of the, of the way cancer has been treated in film and TV is, is uh, I think it misses the boat a little bit. It doesn't think about how society reacts to it or how the person carries on their normal life. It, it's all about, it becomes all about the cancer. And, and in Alice's case, she tries to carry on her normal life. And that's, that's where the, I think the tension and the drama and the, and the piece comes from. Unfortunately, it seems like you guys, you guys kind of have that, a blue car uh, scenario where you buy a blue car, all you see is blue cars. <laughs> now everyone has cancer. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, but the reality is it's, I mean, the reason that stuff is, is out there about that is because it's something that touches all of our lives. I mean, there's no, um, you know, I don't, I, I, TV and film isn't a zero-sum game. The fact that somebody else has got a project that is similar does not take away from your project necessarily. And in fact, traditionally in TV and film, if something is successful with a subject matter, then everybody does that. Like every cop show that comes on TV is not diminished by every other cop show that comes on TV. It's, you know, um, and, and so I think especially independent filmmakers and especially I think, you know, uh, uh, inexperienced people panic when somebody else has a similar idea to yours. But the fundamental reality is that doesn't doesn't matter. If your show is good, if you've got the right angle on the marketing if you've got the right ability to find your audience your good show is not diminished by somebody else's good show mm. well, that's a good way to look at it too well and also you've got to think you know like and you you hit on this a moment ago but obviously there's a market for it yeah well obviously uh, people are gravitating towards it there's a lot of different ways to tell a story sure and and that's just it i mean there's there's a there's a group there's an audience out there you know obviously of you know people who don't have cancer who will be interested in this story for, from from all of the angles because it's a it's a ultimately it's a human story that's it's a human story that everybody can identify with but you know there's also a, an enormous community out there who's who's battling cancer who have survived cancer who are grieving loved ones who have who have passed from cancer and you know this story will have an added dimension you know for them and and it's 
you know, it, it, it sounds really callous. We talk about audience a lot uh, in, in my world, you know, because we're, we're making indie, indie stuff and we're trying to convince somebody to pay for it and usually failing. And so we have to talk a lot about who is the audience for this, how many people are there, what do they do, do they like to watch this kind of thing. And, and so, you know, obviously that kind of research had to be done early on for us so that we could try to pitch even though we, we weren't successful. And, um, and so we know a lot about the audience out there, and it's enormous. I mean, the potential, if you're talking even only about people who've been touched by this disease, uh, there really isn't a bigger audience. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, all sad. Well, you, you say that, but and I don't know what your personal history with it. I, I survived cancer. Oh, okay. Yes. N- not many people know that about me because it's not something I really bring up all that often because when you compare what my story was to most everyone else's, I really didn't have it that bad. I, I I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive to say, yeah, I had cancer, but it wasn't bad cancer. <laughs> but, but I can't say, well, yeah, I had to go in for treatments and chemo, and I had to do this, and I had to do that, and it really ate up my life, and I was weak for a while. Mine was like really, really, really simple, and in, in my mind, at least in my eyes, it's like I can't even claim that. Not that I'd want to anyway to brag, but it's like, well, I can't even say that because look. I, I can't even compare to a story like, like what you're telling with Alice or what you know Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt said in in Fifty Fifty. It's like mine is nothing like that. Well, but but I mean I think that there's aspects of it. So so yeah, that may be true. You know, my my dad and my grandfather both had prostate cancer, and and it, you know they ended up um, their procedures were very successful, and they ended up you know okay after it. But you know at the same time I've got my my friend. Uh, Jared, who's an amazing uh, role-playing game illustrator who lives in Germany, he's he's uh, undergoing, I think, his third round of really serious chemo right now, and he's you know he's very sick and he's fighting the good fight. And and you know while my dad's cancer or your cancer, for instance, if you are holding up and having a you know a comparison between what's the scariest thing you can think of, you know Jared's going to win that comparison right now. But the as individuals in the moment where a friend says, you know, I've been diagnosed with cancer or your doctor says to you, um, this is a malignant tumor or this is a can, this is cancerous. So we need to do a biopsy. The, the, I, I think we all catch a glimpse of, of, of sort of our lives in that, in that crystal moment, you know, um, if it ends up being not serious, that's amazing. And if you end up being able to battle it and, and come out of it and be in remission and be healthy, that's extraordinary. But there's, there's still a moment, I think, that it's a very human moment for us. And, and I think it's, it's, it's cool of you to be able to look at yours and say, um, this wasn't as important as somebody else's who's suffering. And that, I mean, that's, it's cool of you to be able to do that. But the reality was, I'm sure in that moment, you know, it was, you know, you glimpsed a little bit of your life. And that's, and that's universal to all of us, that we all... Yeah, we it all, was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, we, we can all understand a little bit of that terror and, and whether it's us ourselves or somebody that we know, um, that, that, that's, that makes this, the story relatable. That, that, that moment of humanity when you, when you realize in a very fundamental way, the, the limitations of the life that you're, that you have, you know, the, the, you glimpse the corner of the end of your life and it's, that's terrifying. And so I think, I think we all get that whether, whether your cancer is, if you feel your cancer is serious or not, I think, I think, you know, I think we get that as a, as a people who who um, are human beings and love other human beings, you know, right? Well, l- l- let's let's bring it back down a little bit. Here <laughs> what do you mean I, you don't I, want to talk about cancer for an hour? Ah, oh, darn. Well, I would. I was hoping we could talk about zombies. You know. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not really sure if uh, zombies is an up or down from cancer. <laughs> They, they really seem to be a running theme in a, a few of your works here. You have uh, eight thirteen. You had the, the Zombie King. Uh, even when zombies aren't immediately involved, you seem to gravitate towards that and role playing. I mean, even when we met you, I, I feel really bad. Kristen, who who was the one who introduced us, she's like, "Oh, this is the guy with the D twenty tattoo." <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I know if we were supposed that. to. I, I don't know if we were supposed to understand that or not, but. Yeah, on my Twitter account, it actually says the guy with the D20 tattoo. So it's not, uh, it's not a bad thing to introduce me that way. That's, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's an important part of my life. The nerd stuff is an important part of my life. Um, I think the zombie thing is a little bit coincidental, although, you know, Night of the Zombie King is named that um, 813, uh, 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 which I have a very small role as an actor in, is about zombies. Uh, Hollywood Wasteland, which I actually have another kind of small role as an actor in, is also about zombies or of a, of a sort. 
Um, I, I think that's mostly just a sign of the times. I think it's a it's a cool, fun, uh, nerdy thing for people who love horror movies and who love nerd stuff. And just right now, it seems to be the age of the zombie. So that's probably more coincidence than anything. Uh, Night of the Zombie King, actually, uh, which was my uh, role-playing game drama, um, originally wasn't called that. Um, it's it's named after the the adventure that they're that the characters are playing for this one night of of their lives that the series takes place during. Um, it was originally called Night of the Lich King um, because it was this, this, the the adventure that they play um, in the show was based on one that I had written for my old gaming group when we had our reunion, uh, our first reunion, and um, and that was involved a, a, a for people who aren't super super nerdy a, a lich which is a an undead like a zombie wizard if you will um and the only reason we we changed the name from night of the lich king to night of the zombie king was because uh uh the world of warcraft uh, expansion right. Lich king right, yeah. <laughs> had just recently dropped and we decided we didn't want to have people mistake that it was somehow associated to that not that that would be bad. I mean, World of Warcraft's amazing, but we didn't we didn't want to make that confusion happen. You gotta love those weird associations. Our um, our, our website, Stolen Droids, has been around now for what is five this years? On? Five years? Five years? Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, five and a half, our, maybe something like that. Our, our our website has been around longer than the Android phone. Right. Guess what? The number one search hit we get. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, we 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 show up for these interviews. It's like, oh, you. You really aren't anything about phones, are you? I thought I was going to have to talk about cell phones. It's like, no. We're, I don't know. It's, it's a Star Wars and, and, quote. Yeah. Yeah. And then they immediately go, oh, well, are you a Star Wars site? Right. Well, no, not really. We just are nerds. So. Right. It's, it's amazing, though, that people, that people associate. I guess that's how long it's been since Star Wars was really front of mind. I mean, obviously, it's super popular still, but it ruled our childhoods. I mean, you guys are roughly the same age as me. It ruled. It ruled our childhoods. Yes, it did. Uh, yeah. I, I, you, now, the correct thing would have been to do is release it as Night of the Lich King. And when they're like, oh, is this a World of Warcraft thing? You know what? You should watch it and find out. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had actually taken a little bit of a beating when we did Gold. So when we released Gold uh, in, like I said, I think 2008 was when the first episodes came out. Um, we uh, One of the themes of Gold, it was, it was right before... Four, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons came out, and so one of the themes in Gold was sort of the death of the tabletop experience in the rise of the MMO experience, um, and that's you know in the show, uh, and we did I didn't foresee that tabletop gaming would make such a resurgence in the intervening years, which it really has, which is wonderful. But at the, t- at the time, um, you know, the idea of playing Dungeons and Dragons was was a really nerdy thing, and this is only like you know five six years ago. Um, uh, and so we we took a lot of flack for the things the characters say about MMO games in in the show. And and you know uh, my character in particular in Gold um, has a long speech about how tabletop gaming is so much better than than computer uh, MMOs and and how lifeless the uh, the idea of the MMO is. And it's not it's actually not how I personally feel. Although I vastly prefer tabletop gaming, it's the characters, what the characters saying, but we got a lot of blowback from that, um, which is fun because it, the fact that people cared enough to to send us hate mail was great. Um, so we, I mean, so we, we we made a conscious choice that we we wanted the association to be to be not to to not be with World of Warcraft. Um, so I mean, but you're right; it, it would it would have been it probably would have done better for our search results. So those zombies, pretty good. <laughs> you got zombies D twenty. I think you got your your market cornered there. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And now, what are what are your some of your thoughts? Because you talked about kind of how MMO uh, was taking over the tabletop gaming. I remember as a kid, you know, sitting down with my cousins and and doing uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and mm. I mean, I'd go over to my buddies and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. RPG. I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. I played um, a fair amount of TMMT. That was one of the Palladium games, Kevin Sambita's games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a fun one. So, what what do you think? You know, with with this resurgence that we've seen with tabletop gaming, what do you think led to that? Well, I mean, I think I mean ultimately, the, there's always been a vibrant community, but it was a it was a niche, it was a nerd community. You know, Gen Con's been there for years and years. Yeah. It's the, the biggest you know role playing game convention in the world, as far as I know. Um, and they've been around since they were actually in Geneva, Wisconsin. They're in Indianapolis now. 
um, in, in the early days of D&D, that was always sort of the place that I wanted to go. And I've been fortunate enough to exhibit there and been a, a special guest there and stuff in the last few years, which is wonderful. Um, so it's always been had a really powerful sort of loyal um really, really engaged uh, audience. Um, but it was sort of a fringe thing. And I think the big change, I think there were a handful of big levers. Um, and one of the levers was uh, massively multiplayer on- online games. Uh, you know, they grew up out of the muds um, from, you know, the dial-up days. And, you know, that was, uh, you know, EverQuest. And, uh, oh gosh, I, I, didn't, I didn't play the other one. Um, I, can't think of, I can't remember the name. And then ultimately... Uh, when World of Warcraft came on the scene and crushed EverQuest 2 and, and sort of just became this this enormous juggernaut of a thing. Blizzard is so good at what, at what they do and just became this enormous juggernaut of a thing. And I think, I think that was the beginning of it. And, and uh, uh, it, because it was such a vibrant game and such a vibrant community and it had grown out of what had come before, um, it started attracting just an enormous audience. And there's a certain percentage of that audience that understood where that game had come from and so became curious about tabletop games. Um, and then around shortly thereafter, uh, Hasbro bought uh, Wizards of the Coast, which was the company that uh, had made um, uh, uh, Magic, Magic the Gathering, Gathering. Yeah. and was also the company that at the time owned or had bought TSR, who owned Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and so when Hasbro bought, I think it's yeah Hasbro, when Hasbro bought Wizards of the Coast, now you had a a, a big multinational corporation who needs to monetize this thing that they've paid for. Um, and so, uh, the fourth edition of Dungeons and Dragons was born out of that need. Um, it, it was pretty and, bad. Well, I mean, I think we, we, we make fun of it in, in zombie King, but most, mostly because it's a, it's a, it's a good fodder for jokes and there's a vibrant, uh, uh, you know, version wars in the role-playing games world. Um, but really, you know, 4E served a couple of really great purposes. First, 4E is the easiest role-playing game I have ever taught anybody. And I, I've taught a lot, over the years, a lot of people to game and, uh, because of the way 4E was structured, and it really was, what was interesting about 4E was when they built the rule set, and I don't, I don't know anybody, or I guess I didn't know at the time, I, I, I don't know anybody who's, who's deeply, uh, uh, you know, was the, one of the creators of the, of the basic rule set, but they really looked to their child. You know, uh, MMOs had been born out, MMOs and, and, and role-playing game video games had been born out of the tabletop world that, that Dungeons & Dragons came from, um, and had then had kind of evolved beyond it and turned into something different. And so um, the people who were working on the 4E rule set said, you know, these things are really popular. We gain popularity for, for Dungeons & Dragons, the, the parent and grandparent of all these, by learning from what these game makers learned. And, and, so, and because of that, because of the way the leveling system worked with great ease, because of the sort of the um, – powers that could be explainable and you could put on like a little index card and, and have those as part of your game, it became a really easy game to teach. And so I think that was critical to it having a great um, adoption, um, especially with new gamers, uh, was because it was easy to learn. I mean, it, it, eventually there were an enormous stack of rule books. And if you read them thoroughly, your eyes will cross. And, you know, it's really there's a lot of crunch in there that's for the hardcore role playing game nerds. But uh, but the structure of it was something familiar to a to a new generation of gamers, and it become a it was a game that was built to be really easy out of the box with canned characters to teach somebody to play, and and they designed it that way purposefully, and it was really smart. Um, and so while you know some of us may have problems with the system, or it doesn't feel like D and D to us, or you know the flavor of the game is not what we grew up playing, and you know I, like I I don't play 4E a lot, um, I prefer other games. But uh, but whatever you say about that, it really did between basically World of Warcraft and 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 uh, Dungeons and Dragons 4E, it really turned around the role playing game marketplace. Um, it's funny that you should say that. I mean, I, I guess you're right. It could have been worse. I I was never huge into D and D. I did a bit of Shadowrun myself. Ah, uh, Shadowrun. Yes, Shadowrun. <laughs> um, and but what my friends and I did mostly was BattleTech, the ah, tabletop yeah. version. You know, just take up an entire basement worth of map sheets and little miniatures. And FASA, the the company who did that, they got bought out by another one as well. I forget who. They tried to simplify it. Instead of simplifying the rules, and you're right, I mean, there's huge encyclopedias worth of rules and table damage and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you had to memorize. They went and adopted that hero clicks system. Right. Yeah, and that... That killed. I think that that killed every franchise it touched. 
Uh, Heroclix is in, so I actually played a lot of Heroclix because I'm a huge superhero dork. Um, and that actually, the, the, that was the WizKid system, and it started with a game called Mage Knight, which was a fantasy miniatures game that was very similar and had the same, uh, for people who don't know it, it's, a, it's like a little miniature toy wargaming system that's got a really simple rule set, and you know the powers of every unit is on the base of the unit, and when they take damage, it's all self-contained, and it's a really simple rule set. And Heroclix was even simpler than Mage Knight. Um, I, I didn't know BattleTech had been had gone that way. I never played BattleTech, but but yeah, I think I think there's cert- a certain <laughs> appropriately to... they, they named it BattleTech: The Dark Ages. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, but I think there's a certain. I think what what happens when those things when things like that happen is that they un- misunderstand their audience. You know, the kind of person who wants to be a war gamer um, is not the kind of person who uh, necess- they're, I mean, they're interested in the tech and they're interested in the crunch. I mean, war games are about crunch. They're not really role-playing games in, in any real sense because you're commanding armies you're not inhabiting a character and so when you make that mistake um i think you know what happens is like what happened to battletech it, w- it was interesting for for superheroes for hero clicks i think that they were relatively successful all the whiz kids did end up going out of business and being bought by somebody else I, the, the new company that owns uh hero clicks has been cranking out sets i haven't played any of the new sets but they're they're making enough money to keep cranking it out um uh, uh and i, I think actually people who Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. I actually work with two guys who are huge HeroClix gamers, and they're constantly having to go out and get the new set. So yeah, they are, they're churning them out like crazy. Yeah, and I think the I mean the reason that that it appeals really hard to a comic book audience is because you know the the rule set is simple, and you get to you've got a emotional connection to these characters that you're playing because of the comic books. So they're you know they made a game that that uh, you were already invested in the outcome of the game before you even started playing because you love Wolverine or you love Captain America and so or Batman or whatever. And so uh, they, they were that's that's to me, that's why Heroclix was a smart thing to do. Battletech's a little different. I mean, unless you're a specific kind of nerd, you may not understand Battletech and 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 you probably don't have the same sort of emotional connection to to your mechs as somebody does to say Spider-Man, who's a comic book fan. I, it's arguable. I mean, I had and the people. Well, the people I played with too is like, yeah, most of our mechs were fodder. You know, they were the meat shield, so to speak. But you always had the <laughs> one, the one that was yours that you spent a little bit extra time painting and sure. modifying the the loadout that you were kind of sad to see sure. get blown well, up. I buy that. I buy that. <laughs> it's like a favorite car or something. Well, geeks are weird. We are, we are we are we are we are bizarre animals. I, I've got some buddies that play, and I don't uh, I don't actually play a lot of tabletop war games, um, but play War Machine. Um, oh and yeah, the care, the care and time they spend building their armies and painting them and stuff. I mean, I've seen guys just devastated when this you know specific uh, formation that they've been honing for years somebody comes in and just trashes it. It's, it's uh, uh you know so there's definitely emotional investment in that. But I think I think the capacity of a, like a larger you know, kind of general society uh, to have that kind of emotional connection to a to a war unit is is a little bit slightly less, I think, than the superhero connection. I'm just we, like, um, the nature of the subject matter. We uh, we we interviewed a while back uh, someone who became a friend of ours, Larry Korea. He's a uh, author of the Monster Hunter International series. Oh, okay. And uh, an awesome gamer himself. And since becoming friends with him, you, you can see he does Warhammer as well, and he paints miniatures. Wow. And you'd swear he spends as much time painting the miniatures as he does writing his books. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more on the side of the miniatures. I've always admired the mini painters. I, I can't do it. Um, I always have to have somebody else paint if I want my minis painted. Um, and I've even done like the, the paint and take at Gen Con. There's a, if you've not been, there's an there's a area of Gen Con every year where a lot of the miniature companies donate you know miniature blanks and you can go there and you basically sit down and you paint a miniature for free and then you keep it. Um, and I do the paint and take table pretty much every year. And my minis, uh, just because I enjoy doing it, but they look like such crap. It's, it's, I, I do not have that, whatever that skill is that allows you to be amazing at that. I do not have that thing. <laughs> well, thankfully you have quite a few other skills. That oh, we... <laughs> thank you. I, I try to compensate in other ways. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that you're uh, a huge superhero nerd, and this is something that, that we know because a conversation we had when we were in Vegas. I just completely forgot what I was going to say. Wow, that hurts. Um, <laughs> like, do, do you have any favorite, any favorite titles that you, that you read? Any, um... Yeah, I, I read way too much, actually. Right, I, I had stopped my comic pulls 
painfully a few years ago because it was just getting too expensive and I was having to put my personal funds into the film projects that we were working on and, and, uh, and I just had to downsize a little bit. And what's been really dangerous for me is I have an iPad um, and comic, the Comixology app, if you don't know, is a, it's a way for you to buy comic books you know, digitally and read them on, on like your iPad or some, a device like that. And, and it's such a perfect marriage of form factor and content. I mean, just ridiculously perfect and, and ease of use. You don't have to, you know, I love going to comic shops, but not everybody's got one near them. And it's just so easy to finish a comic book. And at the end of it, it says, well, you want to buy this one? And you say, yes, I do want to buy that one. And then you read the next one. It's, it's a dangerous thing. So the last year or so I've, I've accumulated a really terrible comicsology habit. Um, which it's like someone brought the crack dealer into your it, home it, and he sits exactly on your it. iPad it's like, now. It's like you're trying to kick a habit. Uh, but you know, the person you're laying in bed next to is your dealer. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a horrible, it's a horrible, uh, uh, relationship of convenience and, and a powerful, you know, drug, but I love comic books. And so, you know, I try to scale back periodically and then it creeps back up. Um, right now I think, and I'm a big superhero comics guy. I read lots of stuff, but I, I'm, I'm a big superhero comics guy and I, uh, especially Marvel. And, uh, one of my favorite books right now, I was just talking to a friend about this on online is uh, the new Hawkeye book. I don't know if you, you know, the the character Hawkeye from the Avengers is sort of uh-huh. a, a much maligned uh, character that I've always loved because he was always an important ingredient in the Avengers um, uh, during the kind of ca- death of Captain America saga a few years ago. Um, uh, right before that happened, Hawkeye in the comic books perished and, of course, eventually came back. But the Avengers were having sort of a, of a wake for Hawkeye and uh, they were talking about him. Now I'm starting super energy because now I'm quoting comic book characters to you guys. Um, but they're talking about Hawkeye and they're saying that, you know, the best thing about Hawkeye is that he just he always fought with with Captain America and Captain America would say, do this. And Hawkeye would say, no, I'm going to do that. That's stupid. You're not the boss of me. Shut up. And uh, and I le- always loved that about the character. Um, and so there's this new Hawkeye book that's sort of a, what Hawkeye does when he's not with the Avengers. And it's just the writing is superb and the style of the book is sort of pulpy and it's just this fantastic gem of a series that I don't think enough people are reading and everybody should be reading if you like superheroes. Uh, who's who's writing that right now? Gosh, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I happen to have my iPad right here that I can pop open and see. So uh, talk amongst yourselves while I figure this out. That's, uh, <laughs> Don't do it, David. You're just going to buy another three while you're on the, no, while you're being recorded I, by us. I can avoid that. Okay, here we go. So I've got it open. It's oh, it's Matt Fraction. Matt Fraction's writing it. Oh, okay, um, okay, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> Matt Fraction's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's fantastic. The, the the writing is amazing, and it's a guy named uh, Francesco Francavilla that's that's drawing it. And uh, I had never seen his work before, and it's very sort of stylized and pulpy, but it's just wonderful. Um, and, and yeah, Matt Fraction's stories are amazing. And, you know, you've got this guy who's a superhero, but his power is he, I mean, essentially that he never misses or he rarely misses when he's shooting something, whether it be a gun or a, or a bow, which he normally is with. And that's in the world of, you know, crazy powered superheroes. That's kind of a, of a bummer of a power, frankly, but it just, it takes that character and it just, uh, it's just a great, great book. I highly recommend it. I actually kind of prefer the heroes that have to overcome that because you're right. It's like it's like I have the ability that I'm always on time. Yeah. And in the Marvel yeah. universe, that well, that's great. But they have to work that much harder or use it in that much more inventive way. It's one of the, and one it of the actually makes was, them a better hero or a better character yeah, yeah. anyway. It's one of the things that was always really interesting to me about the X Men. Uh, I was I'm a big X Men fan from from way way back. Was that you know compared to especially compared to some of the big DC heroes at the time when we're talking about you know the late 70s and early 80s, you know, the powers that the original X-Men especially had, and, and frankly, most of them, on their own, are not crazily impressive. You know, I, yeah, I, just, I can shoot laser beams out of my eyes, but, you know, I've got a glass jaw, or, you know, I can fly with, with angel wings. Awesome for you. Uh, you can't fight Superman with that power. You, you know, you're hard-pressed to fight Apocalypse with that power. Of course, I distrust publishers there, but you're hard-pressed to fight Apocalypse with the power of I fly and I'm pretty, you know, um, so that's you, you can't even that find shirts with that power. <laughs> exactly, You're, you've got all so all kinds of problems that are you know people and people bag a lot on those early characters. Uh, Kitty Pride is one I think that gets dissed a lot in the in the Marvel universe. One of the X Men because her power is that she phases through things, and it's not a very offensive power. And it's you know, and she's a uh, a character that a lot of people I think overlook. But she's a but because of that, you know, Marvel did a fantastic job, especially in that kind of Chris Claremont era in the in the early 80s, um, 
of making these characters just tremendously interesting. You know, Captain America, when you think about him, is not a very highly powered superhero. You know, he's he's yeah, he's a he's the Uber mentioned, you know, he's the the perfect person and he's super strong, but he's not, you know, uh, uh, Colossus strong, you know, and he's fast and smart, but he's not Quicksilver fast or, you know, uh, uh, Tony Stark smart. You know, he's he, the, a lot of the big heroes in the Marvel universe are, are, uh, a little less powered than they, than they might be otherwise, you know, certainly compared to like a Superman. Well, like and this. I think that that's one of the advantages that Marvel has over DC, and they have for years. You know, you look at the DC characters; they're all gods. I mean, you got Superman, you got Wonder Woman, they're Aquaman. They are literally gods among men. Mm-hmm. And with the Marvel universe, it's normal guy, normal people that are maybe just a little bit special. So you're able to relate to them on a different level than you are with the characters in DC. Yeah, well, it's one of the reasons just, that, that... Just to keep this from turning into a holy war with our listeners, <laughs> I'm a DC guy, so... Uh, actually, I am too, so... <laughs> I, I love a lot of DC comics as well, and, and I'm, a, I'm actually a, a, I'm a big Batman guy. I'm actually a huge Superman fan. Um, I think that Superman's had a lot of trouble over the last 20 years with people oh. trying to figure out how to write for him. Um, but there are Superman stories that are among my favorite comic stories. I think Kingdom Come for me is one of the most perfect comic book stories um, ever written. And I'm a big Batman fan. I think one of the appeals of Batman is that he is a regular guy fighting yes. in this world of of very much not regular guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's much to I, I I generally I love superhero stuff in general, and there's much to love in the DC universe. I think um, I, I happen to be an Avengers X Men guy because that's where I grew up, you know. Um, but but yeah, there's I mean there's great books all around, and, and and there's some of the some of the DC books that I've always loved. I um, I haven't read very much of the new Constantine, but I was a big Hellblazer guy back early in the day, and and they DC did some really into, innovative things that Marvel never would have thought to do with with sort of their Vertigo label in the in the uh, I guess probably early '90s when that started up, where they had you know uh, Hellblazer and Sandman and yeah. a, you know the resurgence of Swamp Thing and and uh, just some really edgy crazily innovative stuff that was wonderful to read. I just reread the miniseries Books of Magic. I don't know if you guys read that back in the day. This was probably late 80s, early 90s. I don't um, think I did. It was just like a four or five part miniseries uh, Neil Gaiman uh, wrote about a young boy who's being sort of courted by uh, the magic characters in the DC universe. Um, he's got the potential to be a really powerful magician, a powerful wizard, and you know, he's going to be tempted by the dark arts. And so basically four of the bigger magical characters in the DC universe go and try to sort of recruit him and teach him about this world that he may enter. Um, and it's really a fascinating book because, you know, a lot of the guys in the DC universe, the magic guys, they're, they're darker heroes. I mean, there's very few of them that aren't like unbalanced and, you know, in the DC universe, magic messes you up. And, and so it's a really fascinating book because it's these ostensibly good characters trying to, appeal to this kid uh not to walk the dark paths but they're all messed up you know sort of anti-heroes in their own right and it's a it's a wonderful book i, I highly recommend it it's like i said i think it's a four or five part miniseries really wonderful i have cool. to check it out yeah well we are we are running low on time here we wanted oh. to bring up though um before we have to go you are going to be at a few cons coming up you're you're shopping around a few cons um, yeah, I, we will be at Gen Con. I am hoping to be there myself. Um, I'm expecting to be, but uh, Gold and Night of the Zombie King will be represented there regardless. We are, we're affiliated with uh, Zombie Orpheus, a, a group of sort of nerd uh, independent TV producers. Um, uh, most of them are out of Seattle, but we're, we're part of that group, and, and they, are, they have a big presence at Gen Con the last couple of years. And then a couple of the guys from Gold I know are going to be there for sure. I'm Like I said, I'm going to try to be. Um, but th- that's, our, that's always our big con. Gen Con's my favorite convention. I'll be at Comic-Con as well, I'm not sure how much of an official presence I will have yet. Um, the last couple of years, I've managed to weasel my way onto some panels and stuff, so that's always good. We'll see if that happens again. Um, and then uh, the rest of our con season is sort of up in the air, but but definitely Gen Con at the very least. Um, that's the one that I love the most. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just like- so if you are in the Gen Con area and you're going to be in there, make sure you stop by and try and find Gold and Night of the Zombie King, and, and if David's there... You know, you can argue with him about DC versus Marvel and <laughs> and Look, edition four versus. 
look for the zombie Orpheus presence. We'll be wherever those guys are. And, and yeah, I, I'm always available to, um, to eventually admit that I was terribly wrong. That's... <laughs> <laughs> David, it has been awesome talking to you tonight. I do appreciate your time. It's been great talking to you guys too. I feel like the hour went so fast. We need more of these. Uh, it, it really did. I've got I've got another thirty minutes of questions I could go over with you. So it did we, go we too used, fast. We used to go much longer, but it turns out people actually don't like hearing us for two and a half hours. That's preposterous. I can't even imagine that that's the case. I go know, fit. huh? <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, go ahead and check David out. We're going to have links to his IMDb, his Facebook, uh, his Twitter, uh, and to his different web series you can check out and uh, view whenever you want. David, it has been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. I've had a lot of fun. (laughs) Until next time, this has been Stolen Droids Presents.